Like it's being seen as the novelty by the white person. There's someone multiple times people call her exotic. Mm. And even that was kind of that microaggression. Like I dated girls who I'm sure it was just for fun because he doesn't look like me. And she goes through that multiple times. Like I don't get the exotic thing. Sorry, yeah, I'm not exotic to you, Ryan. Asian, as an Asian dude, no, I don't get the exotic thing. Maybe Sharon, you've been probably exposed to that more. Like for us, it's more like kind of dorky, sexless. That's sort of a stereotype that follows like the Asian dude around. So it's kind of like the opposite, I think. Maybe the East Asian dudes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, the virility the of whole... the Indians. Hey, man, Kama Sutra gets brought yeah. up in the book. And well, there's a whole segment of, of the population, though, Ryan, that really loves Asian guys. Like outside of the race like they seek out asian guys i found it usually as other men ryan's like <laughs> yeah like where are where they are these <laughs> wondered what a conversation would be like with your biracial kid reflecting on everything that's going on in the world the good the bad the ugly well i don't have a biracial kid but i do have a tuxedo cat who is black and white. Hmm. Okay. Have you ever had a conversation about race with your spouse of another race? My spouse is actually Korean Korean and I'm Chinese American. So she's actually still kind of brushing up on the racial issues of the United States. Same, same, but different. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so Ryan, I think you're the wrong co-host for this episode. How dare you? Hey, Sharon, you there? Hey, guys. Oh, great. It's going to be another one of those <laughs> episodes. I'm reading Roman's script. I don't know what those episodes entails exactly, but we'll find out. <laughs> I'm Roman Segal. I'm Ryan Joe. And we're two dudes who are starting to read a lot more books about the ladies. You guys are ridiculous. This week, we are talking about what might have been my all-time favorite book of 2018, Mira Jacobs' autobiographical memoir, Good Talk. Jacob, who's of Indian descent, was already an acclaimed author for her debut non-graphic novel, The Sleepwalker's Guide to Dancing, which I actually didn't read till after I read Good Talk. But it's worth noting, The Sleepwalker's Guide to Dancing is a novel about a patriarch who starts talking to ghosts. It's a heartbreaking story that recounts with some realism a daughter's relationship with her immigrant father in the last days of his life and their wacky extended Indian family. <laughs> but for Good Talk, the book we're going to talk about this week, Jacob went full-on reality, depicting in a uniquely simple graphic retelling conversations about work and life with her young son, her Jewish husband, her parent-pleasing brother, her Indian parents, her extended family in India, her two best friends, and her very Trumpy in-laws. The book, all told through the lens of race and gender, hit a little too close to home for me, which is probably why I loved it so much. I actually reread it again for the first time a couple nights ago, and the weirdest thing happened, my eyes started leaking. So I thought it might be a good idea to bring along another friend of the pod, Sharon Lee Tony, who happens to be my co-hostess with the mostest from my other podcast, Modern Minorities, where we have conversations on work and life through the lens of race and gender. Sharon, welcome back to Quarantine Comics. It's good to be here. I'm glad that every time you guys read a comic that's written by a woman and about motherhood or, or children, you think of me. It's an honor. <laughs> no live childbirth in this comic book. Spoiler alert. Well, I mean, if I gave you one of the comics that I tend to select, you'd probably never want to come back on the show again. So Fair point. Fair point. <laughs> Challenge accepted. <laughs> oh, watch out. So, so Sharon... I hear, like Roman, you're in a mixed marriage and you have kids. So what'd you think of Good Talk? I really liked it. It 
I really found that I could relate to Mira a lot, especially when her son was asking a bunch of questions, everything from race, color of the skin. But even beyond that, there was a lot about color of her skin and how that even within her own culture was indicative of her value in her culture. And as someone of Chinese descent who is a little darker than most, I guess, than most people from mainland China. So I get mistaken for Southeast Asian a lot, like Thai, Vietnamese, Malaysian. I just kind of look like I'm tan all the time. Do Chinese people have like a pecking order? With oh, Asian? yeah, we do. Yeah. But Sharon, yeah. I just want to say I would give you a high five in camaraderie because I too am a darker Chinese American person. And I get yeah. mistaken for somebody once said, are you from Bombay? I'm like, that's a new one. But Filipino, <laughs> I get a lot. Yeah. And, and definitely in China, there's that preference for the northern fair-skinned look rather mm-hmm. than the swarthy, flat-nosed person that I became. Right. Right. Exactly. Yep. Like you and I look like we're from the farm, like straight up. Yeah, from the farm. exactly. You and I, we got, we both got big feet, big rough calloused hands from, you know, <laughs> leading the water buffalo. That's the look that we give off. You know, I think the every culture like wants lighter skinned people, except for two. And that's white people who want to look tanned. So it looks like they have a lot of vacation. They literally go tan themselves. But also, Sharon, I don't know if you remember when we interviewed South African guest on our show who's mixed race South African, his grandma was like, you're not dark enough. You're too light. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this obsession with being whiter, it exists in, as, as you read in the book, with an Indian culture as well. Like yeah. there's literally a product called Fair and Lovely that just like, sells like crazy. Totally. It's nuts. Yeah, totally. Like Shiseido, which is out of Japan, makes a whitening or lightening cream. It's one of those words, but $98 a bottle for like a, like a one ounce jar of bleaching cream. And as I was reading the, the, I mean, I, I guess we're, we're allowed to talk about the book, right? Like we're not going to spoil it. In any no, way. we can't, we can't, we can't talk about the book at all. I'm <laughs> Actually, I'd love to focus on the end of the book, Sharon, and your specific thoughts about the end. The end was fantastic. <laughs> please, please tell us more. I hate you guys. <laughs> I didn't make it to the end, you guys, for anyone who's listening, but I made it I, I made it mostly through it and it was fantastic. No, no one is listening except for Ryan's Auntie Pinky. And well, uh, we'll we, probably wind up buying her this book. We're gonna we're gonna cross post this, aren't we? So our listeners might be listening. Oh shit. And they're gonna <laughs> know that I'm a fraud. I'm total okay. fraud. Just kind of on this show, red half. Mira Jacobs never gonna come on Modern Minorities <laughs> now, and she's like on my list of gets. Oh, oh no no no. It's Mira Jacob. Remember she had that complaint with her Mormon her teacher. teacher who kept mispronouncing her name, Mira Jacobs. Yep. Yep. Uh-huh. <sighs> Ruman, don't fall into that trap. I read, I read that part, you guys. Yeah. I part. Well, I, I want to actually want to bring it back and then toss it to Ryan. But the conversations with the kid were amazing because there were these like super deep questions. And he's like, I can moonwalk. I'm yeah. in the FBI. And I was like, that's kind of my kid's arrogance. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And and the, they were just so real because I think her son is, what, six years old or something? I, I think he ranges, but yeah. And by, by now he's probably like 10 or 11. Yeah. But yeah. But he's in that range and my kids are six and eight. So it's the, the way he was asking the questions, like something that just really deep and poignant. And then she would answer it in a really meaningful way. And then his mind would just go completely like, like, you know, at one point he was like, oh, so is it, are we kind of like Iron Man? Like we're here to fight the bad guys. And she's like, what? And that's kind of, <laughs> that's how my conversations go when I talk to my kids about race or 
cross-cultural relationships and things like that. Yeah, they go deep and then they just take like yeah. a hard left turn into crazy town. Well, I was actually kind of wondering for both of you, like what sort of conversations about race do you have? So Sharon, you said your kid's around the same age as Mira's child at the beginning of this book. And then Roman, I believe your daughter's four. Yeah. So- and, and by the way, for four listeners of Quarantine Comics, Sharon's married to a black guy so her kids are half black and they look dark in america yeah and and for i guess everyone knows my kid is half chinese half indian but i think we all look dark in america yeah no (laughs) my daughter started to ask finally the election drove some of it i've talked about how she's kind of reacted to kamala harris but she's asking about am i american or am i chinese what does that mean which nation is the best which color is the best And these are hard questions. I mean, you want to answer them honestly, but you want to provide context, even though they don't, I think they know more than they put on. So I don't know, but we've started the conversations now. What about you, Sharon? Same here. I think my kids are like, sometimes I feel like they really get it. And then sometimes I think that just like Mira's son, they'll just like their mind will completely go to somewhere else. And then I just think that that they miss that point entirely. But for them, they still have a nice balance of identifying as being fully biracial. So they do consider themselves to be Chinese. They also consider themselves to be black. They draw themselves as black kids. Like, you know, they use tan colored crayons. They draw themselves with curly hair because that is what they have. And they relate to black characters when they see them. So Black Panther, one of their all-time heroes, oh, President Obama. So they find role models. Do they know Obama's mixed? I think they do. You know what? I should check on that. I'm not sure. I'm not. <laughs> Bring him on the show. She, she pounds on the wall and she's like, hey, hey, hey. wake up. <laughs> <laughs> do you know he's half white? <laughs> Ryan, what about you? I mean, so what do your kids think? No, what did you think of the book? I just asked my cat and the cat said, I'm sleeping, meow. So (laughs) it didn't answer. (laughs) What did I think of the book? So so obviously I don't have kids. So I didn't relate to that relationship with the kids, or at least that wasn't something that was immediately recognizable. Though, of course, I I love the way she depicted it. As Sharon kind of pointed out, the way his attention kind of wanders. He'll ask very pointed questions and then suddenly he'll just answer it and then he'll just go into a completely separate direction. Actually, what I really loved about this book is how it doesn't really have a lot of text, as comics tend not to, but how Mira Jacob was able to suggest so much personality and complexity in everyone she spoke to or she depicted. With the same damn picture. Yeah, with the same picture. And a real economy of dialogue because there's really not a lot. I, I was reading some interviews with her where she said, oh, I'm sure my mom's more complex than this. Everyone I depicted is more complex than this. But she was able to suggest a lot of complexity, suggest a lot of cultural things, personality things that might, through the the sparse dialogue, if that makes sense, you know, that wasn't necessarily fully articulated. And I thought, my God, it's just like what skill she has as a writer to kind of bring this all out. In such little space and with, honestly, again, the same image, the people she draws, she basically, she just draws herself and uses that over and over and over and over. Cuts it out and puts it on top of photographs. Yeah, I love the mixed media kind of feeling. But the space between the words, something I noticed the second time around is literally the word balloons 
she created pauses by keeping them further apart in some moments. Like they're super mm. tight when it's like a back and forth dialogue. And then when some, someone says something that kind of drops the mic, there's like two inches of space before she's like, oh, yeah, you know, oh, sure. Or even when her kid changes the topic, there's a little of that. Like page 175, there's this back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And the kid's like, what? And it's not even like it's barely noticeable how much extra space there is. But in that moment, you realize there's a pause. There's a thinking, uh, I don't want to get into this with my son. So there's just like, yeah, to your point, there's just so much emotion or contemplation packed in between the word balloons. I also loved as a native New Yorker, I loved how the city was a character in the book almost like she found really interesting places to have these conversations. Like there's a couple of them where she's on the subway and they're talking about those are great. Mm, yeah, and with like, the homeless guy, the homeless laughs. guy, right? And like, or like, with whoever sitting next to them having an opinion about things. Or, I think he was asking her about race as they were walking through Chinatown, and I recognize that street. Like, she did a really nice job of just literally putting the setting as a character as well. Yeah, and she goes all over New York from like the bodegas to the subways and even that editor. Yeah. And that editor, the super rich editor Bree, who hires her to write her book. Who lives down the street from you, Ryan? Yeah, exactly. That was just so emblematic of Mira Jacobs' power as a writer, how this character, Brie, who's this rich bitch from the Upper East Side, very kind of frivolous. And she seems almost stuck in a way, just this rich character. And then you kind of see what's driving her. And that changes like everything that completely changes your perception of her. I think in that chapter, it's worth noting, the second time I read it, I was like, my God, if you ever wanted to explain microaggression to a white person, let them read that chapter. Because it's just like, there's so much packed in there. Yeah. Uh, just this like unwillingness to understand. And it happens later when she goes to her in-laws for the bark mitzvah. But there's just, I felt those and you just kind of bury it. And the argument she has with her husband later on is like, because you just kind of have to fucking deal with it. You know, it just exists and you can't complain about it. You just have to take it on the chin. It's insidious how subtle it is, but I think the fact that Mira Jacob just distills all of those microaggressions into into these word balloons, it makes it pop in a way that when it happens to you in real life, there's a little bit of ambiguity there. There's all of these other stimuli around you, right, that might kind of muffle that a little bit or might obscure it right here in this format. It really, you really, really see it. It's literally in black and white. Yeah. This whole book is a reflection on past conversations. And- in the moment, sometimes you don't realize what's happening in an interaction with other people, in an interaction with your family. And so these kind of distilled conversations, they're not actual conversations she had, but they are summaries. They're, they're cleaner, black and white, but subtly articulate instances of realizations that people are having, be it with ex-boyfriends, ex-girlfriends, ex-bosses, parents. It just, like I said, it hit too close to home because I've had these conversations with different people in my life who fit the same archetypal role, you know? And I don't know. I'm, I'm, I, I was going to ask on your subject of these things happening, and you're not sure if it really happened at the time, and it's only in retrospect, but do you guys ever think back on your childhood about things that happened in your childhood that I guess you might have passed over at the time because you were a kid and you didn't fully process it? But now as an adult, you think back about it, you remember it for some reason, probably because as a child, you knew it was wrong. And you realize that maybe those some of those interactions that you had as a child were like, born out of racism. Does that ever happen yeah. to you guys? Yeah, it does. 
It does. Like I'll, once in a while, I'll just get a memory pop up and it'll, yeah. I'll connect that as an adult, right? And you're like, that was probably a really racist interaction that yeah. I totally missed. Didn't yeah. like went way over my head when I was like 10. That's what I think she did really well. Like the, I'm trying to look for the teacher's name. Who was the teacher's name? Oh, Miss, such a good story. Yeah. Such Miss, a good story. Miss, Miss Morell. Miss Morell. Because oh, good. even the way she tells the story about either why Miss Morell had the wrong address or why they were discouraged from going to that luncheon and that ceremony, it's told through the eyes of a little girl who doesn't really understand that Mira wasn't welcome because she wasn't white, right? The way that that story is told, there's no conclusion to it except that she gets to go, she does really well, and then Miss, Miss Morell pulls over and says... You're American, don't ever forget that. But what's missing is is the adult understanding of context there. And she, But that's for us. That's for us, the reader, right? Right, right. She did such a nice job of, of telling that story because it wasn't through the lens of an adult. She literally told it through however she experienced it back then. Well, I don't know about you guys, but like I've had those moments. And it, to your point, Ryan, like reflecting, my parents weren't there to tell me that because they were immigrants, if that makes sense. So- it was all about fitting in. And I've said that to my daughter a few times, especially since we moved to the new town that we're in, which is my daughter's now the token brown person in her classroom. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if these things are happening to her, but I know these things will happen to her. And I, <laughs> yeah, that, that was one of the pages where my eyes started malfunctioning and mm -hmm. started leaking because I know that's going to happen. And I can't you can't protect a kid from that happening, right? You just kind of have to arm them with the knowledge and the confidence. Yeah. So how do you guys do that? Because yeah, I kind of wonder if my parents, if that was something that they were thinking about when they raised us. I actually never asked them. But I feel like there's more awareness now, especially today, because it's so much more polarized. You're exposed to so much more toxicity, mm -hmm. just thanks to the internet. So I get the sense that if you're a parent today of a biracial child or even just a child who's not white, you do kind of have to prepare them for some of the offenses that's going to come their way. So, I mean, do you guys have a playbook that you use or best practices no. to use a tech no. term? We should just, write one. We need one. <laughs> I, I will. Coming to you I don't from a guy with no kid. <laughs> when I read this book the first time, two years ago, my daughter was two and a half. And so we weren't having those conversations, but I remember filing that away. You are American. Be proud of that. And in the last couple of years, as she's gotten older, she's now four and a half, where they talk about countries. We bought her a globe. She knows, you know, grandma is from Africa, but she's Indian. Japo, who is the Chinese grandma, is from China, but she's from Jamaica. But both your grandpas are from China and India, respectively. All those things, all that history, all that stuff. Now I literally punctuate it with, but you're American. You're American. That's what makes America great. Mm -hmm. And I say those words to her literally in preparation for the terrible shit, not because I want to go rah-rah and you know wave the flag, which I should, I guess, but it's really about some, in preparation for someone's going to tell her that shit, that she doesn't belong. And when that happens, she's going to know that she does belong, I hope, because her dad keeps saying it for some weird reason yeah. from the ages of four to eight. Yeah. How about for the less obvious shit, though? We were just talking about the microaggressions, stuff like that, that is so much more subtle and also insidious because it kind of builds up, right? Without you yeah. knowing it's building up. I think a lot of it is teaching them confidence and self-acceptance. Yeah. Self I'll give you, like, this literally just happened the other day. So my kids go to a school where it's primarily white 
and they also wear uniforms, which in some ways I guess is good, but in other ways I think contributes to this, you know, crazy idea of we all have to be kind of the same. So Friday they had um, free dress day, which is the kids get to choose whatever they want to wear. They don't have to come in in uniform. And my kids are new to the school. So this was their first free dress day ever. And my six-year-old decided he wanted to wear a suit. And my husband, who's black, immediately was like, Sharon, are we going to let him do this? And I was like, absolutely. He wants to, he wants to show up wearing a fucking suit. Like let him strut onto the campus, dressed to the nines, being that guy. Like that's the guy he wants to be. And I don't want to shoot that down at such a young age. And I could see my husband going back and forth of like, oh my God, like what if it didn't play out in such a dramatic way, but just the way that he reacted, I'm sure he was worried that the kids would make fun of him or that he would be weird. And and I was like, no, we've got to do this. Like he made a decision and we have to empower that decision. So he was like, all right. So he did his dad thing. He got him into a suit. He helped him to tie his tie and stuff. And it's a navy blue suit with a red tie. And my six-year-old was like, this is my Obama suit. And I was like, perfect. I'm going to roll with this. I'm like, that's right. You're going to show up. You look just like President Obama. Everyone's going to love it. And he went to school and we got a note from the teacher and the teacher was like, he won free dress day. He was like, he looked so adorable in a suit. We went to go pick him up from school. The teachers were like cheering. I mean, (laughs) it was almost like he was so over the top that it became something to celebrate. Like he was so different and he was so proud of it that it became something to celebrate. And I think as a parent, whether it's race or whether it's talent or whether it's a tick, you know, like kids are just different. And I think teaching a kid that who they are is okay and that they should be proud and that they should show up as their full selves gives them that armor for anything else later on in life. Halfway through that story, I thought something terrible was going to happen. I'm not going to lie because (laughs) I've come to expect the worst. And I, but here's why I I actually do think, I don't want to say kids have it easier now, my upbringing, the world wasn't as woke. We were more of a novelty, right? The Asians, even mixed race people were much more. And some of the things we said, I said racist things as a kid, right? Because that's what kids said to fit in against the others, right? And I think we're more, I think there's more of everything. There's more acceptance. There's more mixed race people. We had a mixed race president. But at the same time, I think there's just kids find more interesting ways to be mean. They're not the most obvious ways Yeah. now. Yeah. Not because they're malicious. It's just the complexity of the conversation is just deeper now because of access to all of the things that they're mimicking and mirroring. We're really straying away from the book, Ryan. But again, like I said, this book stirred up some, some shit in me. And my own experiences, again, even not with just kids in relationships and dating. And Ryan, you can probably relate to that. Like it's being seen as the novelty by the white person. There's someone multiple times people call her exotic. And even that was kind of that microaggression. Like I dated girls who I'm sure it was just for fun because he doesn't look like me. And she goes through that multiple times. Like I don't get the exotic thing. Sorry, yeah, I'm, I'm not exotic to you, Ryan. Asian, as an Asian dude, no, I don't get the exotic thing. Maybe Sharon, you've been probably exposed to that more. Like for us, it's more like kind of dorky, sexless. That's sort of a stereotype that follows like the Asian dude around. So it's kind of like the opposite, I think. Maybe the East Asian dudes. Oh yeah, <laughs> no, the virility so... of the Indians. Hey man, Kama Sutra gets brought yeah. up in the book. And well, there's a whole segment of of the population, though, Ryan, that 
really loves Asian guys, like outside of the race. Like they seek out Asian guys. I found that usually as other men. Ryan's like, <laughs> yeah, like where are Literally. they? <laughs> you know, I remember when I was doing online dating in my 20s, there were a few women who I got the sense were actually had an Asian fetish, but it, yeah. which was actually a little bit off putting because then you start thinking about like, well, wait a minute, you start feeling like a token. Right. You but know, there's the guy that talks to her about that in the book, a white guy. He's like, so what if I like, you know, dark girls? Like, yeah. But even that, microaggression Yeah, right? I mean, that's what's so nasty about that sort of shit, because they, people try to disguise it as a compliment. I mean, even the people who are doing it right. don't always understand that it isn't uh, a compliment. And it's also so fucking arrogant also, because you're, I mean, like, what, a compliment from you is supposed to mean anything to me, you know? I mean, that's the assumption, right? You should be flattered that I have bestowed my admiration upon you. Give me a break, man. <laughs> I'm not single anymore, but I, I, I do feel like there's like a twisted power in that, right? If you're the one that's put up on a pedestal or if you're the one that's being pursued, there are ways that you can leverage that. I'm not saying it's healthy or that it's good or it's positive, but it can go both ways is what I'm saying. Yeah, that's true. Like I know many an Asian girl in my youth anyway, that willingly dated older men outside the race, knowing that that would mean better free dinners or free pairs of shoes. You know what I mean? So you can play it on both sides. And so, okay, so I'll write the book about talking to your kids on race and Sharon, you write the book. About sugar daddies? Sides. Yeah, about oh, sugar daddies. Yeah, yeah. How to you got it. <laughs> well, I'm, again, I'm struggling to bring this back. But again, Mira Jacob, unfortunately, already wrote the book on what Indian parents are like. Like pretty much uh, other than the show, Never Have I Ever, this is one of the most accurate depictions of what Indian parents are like. Again, down to the arranged marriage and the story of how the parents got together, yeah. the perception on love marriages, the kind of absence from conversation until later on in life. Like mm -hmm. after my sister and I got married, our dad, my That's brother That's though, I hope. I mean, you're from Alabama, <laughs> not, to, not, to, not to be a stereotype or anything right. like that. Right, right. But we even called him like dad. My brother-in-law called my father the dad 2.0 because his personality just completely changed once he knew his kids were okay. And you kind of see that with the parents. In the chapter where she smokes weed with her dad who has cancer, minus the cancer, which is what her other book was about. And again, I, I now read this book through the lens of that whole other critically acclaimed novel about her dad's cancer. It's just, my dad doesn't have cancer to be clear, but just- how open parents become later on in life. They become pushy about your love life yeah. until you kind of settle down. And I think that's kind of universal, but I don't know. It's actually, that's what was missing from the book. Her parents, her parents are only depicted in the pre-marriage and kid life. She doesn't really talk about her parents. She talks about her in-laws after her son is born because of the Trumpy nature of them, which I want to talk about. But her Indian parents are largely absent from her motherhood life, which I thought was interesting. Do you think that was a deliberate choice? Or maybe that's just because she is living in, in New York. Her parents are in, in Albuquerque. So that might or be... Or her in-laws. I think it was, there wasn't as much drama and tension. I'm sure they're supportive and they're fantastic, right? We saw that happen. My sister married a black guy. And after they got married, they're the most supportive, amazing parents. And there's 
are not arguments about race. There's more empathy minus a couple of incidents. Actually, I'm more curious than about that for both of you because Roman, you're married to a Chinese American. Sharon, you're married to African American, Caribbean American. Uh, He's Caribbean American. Caribbean American. My bad. Yeah. And then Roman, okay. you just said your sister's married to to a black guy. So what were those? You know, were there any awkward moments with the in-laws or with your own parents? You know, was there a need to break it to them that you're marrying somebody outside of your race, or did you just say, hey? This is who I'm marrying, so come to the wedding or not. Oh, yeah. The long yeah. and short is yes. Yeah. <laughs> we, we talk about this a lot on our own show, but Remen, you can go first and then I can dive Well, I mean, the, the one dichotomy I'll explain, my sister and I both, we'd been dating, not telling our parents about the person we wound up marrying for years, and we both kind of told our parents, this is probably the one around the same time. And you can imagine my parents' reaction, again, and it's no disrespect to them. I think it would have happened to any parents. My parents' reaction to my sister's boyfriend, fiance, now husband, versus my girlfriend, fiance, now wife, was very different. And my sister called them out on that because <laughs> it, it was more okay because I married an Asian woman, right? And my sister and I had both dated and brought home white people. We had both dated and brought home Indian people. But the reaction to your question, original question about outside the race, Ryan, was significantly more muted for my Chinese-American wife versus my my African-American brother-in-law. Yeah. I mean, Sharon, what about you? Yeah, my parents were not thrilled at all with me dating a black guy at the time. And it wasn't until we had children, to be honest, that everything became okay again. So there was a period of a lot of tension and just you know it i disappointment not really because not because of him personally but just because the vision of their chinese daughter marrying a chinese man was never going to happen for them and when i read the part in the book about how mira's parents had said there's arranged marriage there's love marriage and then there's american marriage i think that was the third <laughs> one right I um, never heard the third one, but I'd heard love marriage. That yeah. was a term I'd heard many times. And when I think about my own family, so my grandparents were arranged on my dad's side. They were arranged. They didn't know each other at all. They met through a matchmaker. My parents got married. They met each other. So that's a love marriage. And then I think about like in this context, so then I had the American marriage, right? Like, I mean, we're happy. And I think in the book, they like Mira's mom is like, people that get divorced and they're crazy and they're whatever. But I think that's just a function of generations as well. As each generation progresses, their relationship to what it means to be married and who they choose to marry differs as they get more acclimated to the country. The thing that was actually really relatable in this book, counterintuitive, but so in the book, Mira's brother Arun marries an Indian girl, right? He's totally doing everything he's supposed to be. He went into math and science, whereas Mira's like a broke author in New York. Uh, but he marries an Indian girl. Yeah. And the parents are just totally wooing after their perfect son. And uh, thankfully, my sister, well, my sister does listen to Model Minority. She doesn't listen to quarantine comics. <laughs> but this is very much an I told you so moment for my sister because I did it right. I can't do any wrong for my parents, but she took the harder path. And she even, my sister gave my parents the Indian wedding with my black brother-in-law and there was a high school marching band and, and everything like, but, and we were like, screw it. We're getting married on a cruise ship. We're going to do it the way we want to, but I could do no wrong. And I'm guessing because it was, I didn't marry 
a black person. I married an Asian person. And in the book, Mira's brother married who was more in line with who the parents wanted him to marry, and Mira mm-hmm. did not. And again, there isn't that contrast because at the moment of Mira's brother's wedding, she's single. If anything, that's the big issue. You're still single. Oh my God, Beta, what are you doing? And the family calling and pestering her to go meet the neurosurgeon in Columbia. Yeah. Again, there's just that happened to my sister. We were out in LA when my sister when I were both single, visiting our family in California. And all of my family put so much pressure to set up my sister to go meet this Indian guy for a coffee. Did he you show know? up? They went. Yeah, yeah, they met up. And but it was a whole thing. Like everyone was at the house waiting for her to come back and to hear what happened. And it was just like the other revealing thing in this book for me was the the difference in expectations on boys and girls and Indian families. It rings so true. And for me, it was like, I knew my sister was going through this shit from my family and my extended family, but it allowed me to relate to it so much more. Yeah. You know, that's funny. It's very similar to Chinese culture. And when I was single, I had been the person that my mom and my aunts were trying to set up with all sorts of random sons of friends and they were always, God bless them now. And if they do listen to our show, you guys were all very nice people, but <laughs> we were just never right for each other for many reasons. And and I wonder if it's because in many Asian cultures, the girls marry out, right? So Yeah, you're leaving when, the family. Right. When you have a son, he gets to choose who he brings into the family. And then as parents- well, You carry the name, you get all the money. Right, right. In, in, old, in the old countries. Totally. Yeah. And so there's a lot more anxiety around- the girls and the women because someone else has to choose her. And so therefore she has to be choosable or worthy of being selected. And the neurosurgeon blind date thing was so interesting because it tied right back to the whole uh, skin color thing again, that she was so plagued by Mm. growing up. And so when I read that, that was for me a pretty triggering moment of like, wow, not that that had ever happened to me personally, but like I could see how that would have really been scarring. That you know of. Well, yeah, that's true. You're right. You know, just kind of about Mira's skin color again. It is interesting to me that the first time she kind of becomes aware of this hierarchy of skin tones, at least as it's depicted in this book, seems to be like when she's a child and from people of her own culture. Um, In India. In India. In India, yeah. That's her first depiction of that sort of prejudice. So that that was... was, Indian people are way more prejudiced than anybody in America. It's not even funny. I definitely see that in Chinese-American culture. I know that I've had some older relatives who did not want to vote for Obama because he was black and only for that reason. So you definitely see that in Asian cultures, that sort of racism. But I mean, I think that's something that Jacob calls out throughout the book. I I think another interesting thing I really loved is she showed three moments in our shared history as 30 and 40 something year old adults in America, 9-11, the Mm. rise of Obama and the rise of Trump. Those are three significant plot threads that you see her reacting to. You know, 9-11 is her single dealing with it in New York. But the rise of Obama was in her growing relationship with her husband and the birth of her child. Then, the, yeah. And yeah. But the rise of Trump era happened while she's having these conversations with her son because you place the timeline immediately because some of the first questions her four or five year old son is asking about is this guy, Donald Trump, and the things that he's saying. And I am so glad. My daughter only now around the election time realized who Biden and Trump and Harris were. But for the last four years, she didn't. But this little boy did. And Sharon, your kids have. And 
I don't know. Again, another thing that hit close to home, like we've all been living through these things. I was in Alabama when 9-11 happened. And fortunately, by that point, I was known around campus, but I had a Pakistani friend who wore a hijab who did not have a very pleasant time in Tuscaloosa around the time of 9-11. And I didn't have pleasant times in airports flying around for interviews and stuff. So it just, again, hit close to home, her depiction of how she navigated these three moments, especially in the later stages of her life, being married, being pregnant, and having a child. Question, how did your kids feel about Trump? My kids say that he's evil because that's what he's heard from his grandmother. (laughs) How about yours, Raman? She barely understood it. We kept her away from it. Election, they did a big election thing at daycare, so she's been asking. But she has asked, when is Trump leaving? Why don't people like him? I like Joe Biden, but she's just saying that because he's the president. But Sharon and I did a whole three episode series on the election, but we let my daughter stay up to watch Biden because she was asking about him, give his acceptance speech. And I did not know that Kamala Harris was going to be speaking that night. And to watch my daughter watch that and to see the kind of excitement I saw in her eyes when this lady was who looked like her was speaking and the question she was asking the days after just melted, man. It's just nuts. And so I'm so glad my daughter's the age that she's at, that her kind of realization of who the president is like she was born when obama was president but soon after trump won and i was like oh fuck like i it literally crashed my world and my perception of conversations with friends because this i I mean i was glad my daughter didn't have to experience it because she was a baby going on into two three but i don't know how to explain the next four years if if he was still in office or if he was still going to be i mean he may still be but you know that's interesting i have have a friend whose daughter i think she was four or five at the time he was first elected, she was a big Trump supporter because she really liked Disney villains. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So Trump kind of fell into the category of Ursula and Jafar. (laughs) So she was really into Uh, Jafar is a Muslim. That would never work out. (laughs) He might be into Ursula. That's like wife number three. Scar. She's like Gaston. (laughs) That's funny. I I don't know if there's anything else to cover here. I let me let me ask you. Let me. I actually have a very pointed question about this book. I've been thinking about this on the second reading. I kind of want to buy this book for my sister for Christmas. Should I? Yeah, I don't know your sister, but I'd say yeah. I think she'd love it. What makes you hesitate? This book hit way too close to home for me, and I wonder if it would hit even more close to home. For her. <laughs> I have a question. When you say it hit way too close, I mean, I know what that means, but I'm just kind of like, why is that a bad thing? Yeah. Feelings are bad, guys. Come Feelings. on. Oh, no. come on. Feelings um, are great. No, they are, but this dredges up a lot of painful things that I'm over. I like to think I'm over. I blocked the memories out. I'm fully actualized. I'm so cool. I got three podcasts and hip, cool friends that I do. You know, I, and this dredges up a lot of bad shit for me. And it honestly, it dredges up all the things I'm fearful of. A conversation she has to have with her son. I mean, I guess this is the playbook for the conversation to have with your kids. But even, right. I, and again, don't know if she's it, like it. Has it changed the way you think about those conversations that you're going to have to have with your kids? Has it changed the way you think about things that happened in your past? You can't change the past, but you can change the future. So that's uh, not an answer, Ruman. That's a, you skirted that's that one. Quote. That sounded so good. That's like a front of episode <laughs> quote. <laughs> I'm over the past. I don't want to think about it. It sucked. It really fucking sucked. Being a teenager, being a 20-year-old, all of that stuff sucked. And I'm a stronger man for all of it. 
and I will use all of the lessons learned to make my daughter like a kick-ass ninja warrior. But the world outside sucks. The MAGA signs suck. The the racist asshole who's leaving the White House, he sucks. But the effects are still there. Yeah. People are still going to say this shit. And I, I didn't answer your question again, but it's... Uh, so let me let me turn it back on you guys. I, and I don't know. Did this book... I, the answer is an obvious no, probably. But like, did this book mean as much? How much did this book mean to you? Or is it just, eh, it's pretty good. She said some pretty funny stuff. Because it is that. I think it's entertaining as well. Like, yeah. I don't know. I, How did the book hit you? I loved the book. And I haven't finished it yet, as you guys know. But I'm going oh, to. Oh, wait till the last chapter. You might just hate it. <laughs> I hope not. But what I love about the book is that it does touch on lived experiences that are shared. And as much as it's painful to have to reflect upon that and to to take yourself back to that moment in time in your own life, what I love about this book is that it makes me realize that I'm not alone. I'm not alone in having those weird conversations with my six-year-old on the subway. I'm not alone in having felt as if my Chinese parents or aunts or uncles had certain beliefs and pressures for me to marry somebody else from our same village. All of those things are things that literally had happened to me too in a slightly different way, but I've lived that same exact experience. And and I think that's the point of art and great books. It's to have those stories be told so that we feel less alone. And I think that's exactly why you should give it to your sister. Sorry, yeah, I'm in favor of you giving it to your sister too. I mean, on account of the fact that you read it twice, despite the fact that, as you said, it's a little bit hard for you to take. I mean, you made a decision to read it again. I, I don't mean you might have read it more than twice. And for me, what I, I liked about it, like the graphic novel format, I mean, the comics format is always really, really primal. That's the, the strength of the images and the pictures, whether you're reading something like X-Men or, or, you're, or you're reading something that's a little bit more subtle like like Adrian Tomina. And what I really like here is that even though it's just this confrontation of what is it like to be multiracial or an ethnic in America, it also addresses some of the subtleties of it, right? Like usually when you depict acts of racism, it's just very obvious. Um, yeah, Superman yeah. smashes the clan. Superman yeah. smashes the clan. It's the races are clearly evil and frothing and bad. And here you really have none of that, right? I mean, most of the acts of racism that really impact Mira are subtle and actually really easily missed, like that interaction with the Boston public radio producer. It's really what sets her off. And I think that if you're not looking for it, you can just brush it off but the graphic novel format forces you to confront it it forces you to confront these acts of racism that aren't obvious that are a little bit more insidious due to their subtleness and i think that's the power of what mira jacob wrote and also the power of the format in which she decided to to write it because if this were just an essay i think it would actually lose a lot of its power so putting it in the graphic novel format, despite not being a, a graphic novelist, I mean, she had to kind of teach herself how to draw her herself and her, her family. It was a great decision and it was a, a very bold decision also. So you're saying you didn't hate it, right? I definitely did not hate it. 
<laughs> it's always a win. Well, I have this. Okay, so, so I have this reputation of being like I hate everything that Roman suggests, but I just want to say that that is totally not true. I like because I've been one. stepping up my game. I've been stepping up my game. <laughs> so Ryan, I gotta ask, what are we reading next week? Well, Roman, you should tell me. Oh fuck. <laughs> Next week, we are reading a great book for kids, Sharon, who I have bought for my nephew and many other friends, young oh, boys. Oh, and oh, fuck. <laughs> Sounds like a really poignant story. That's not, that's not for kids, Roman. <laughs> Jeff's, next week, we're reading Jeff Smith's Bone. It was told in individual issues. It's been collected and republished by Scholastic in color, and it tells the story of the three bone cousins, Phone Bone, Phony Bone, and Smiley Bone, on their journey into the valley into some seemingly innocent adventures, a great cow race and a few other things. And then shit goes off the rails. So next week we're going to be reading bone with my other friend of the pod, Brandon Dawson. So Sharon, thank you so much for coming back to the podcast. It was a delight to force you to read comic books some more. Thank you. I'm really starting to enjoy reading comic books. So I hope you'll invite me back again and I will. We, we will. I will. Perfect. I promise and that I will try harder to finish the next one. And it will not be about it will not be about motherhood or girl stuff. I'm gonna find something that you're gonna hate. Awesome. I can't wait. (laughs) We can all shit on it together. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Be sure to share with a friend, subscribe, and leave us a review wherever you get your favorite podcasts. See lots of pretty pictures of books we read at qtdcomics.com. I'm Roman Segel. And I am and have always been Ryan Joe. 